0: Welcome to another great episode of Papa PhD. This week, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who has recently made the transition from her PhD to the non-academic job market, and has done so into the PhD career development and recruitment domain. During our conversation, Rebecca Maimon not only recounted her experience exploring career avenues during her PhD and navigating that transition, but she also shared valuable insights based on her research and on her recruiting experience working in an organization that focuses exclusively on PhDs. And remember, stay tuned until the end for the podcast discovery segment, where I'll be presenting you two new podcasts, Planthropology and Dear Grad Student. Enjoy the show. Really,
1: you know, the interview is just to find out about you, right? They already see your skills on your CV. So I am in the habit of preparing about four or five different source stories and just making notes of what those stories are in my notebook before I start the interview. And sometimes the question might be different. It might be like a challenge or they might say like, you know, what is a time when you had a disagreement? Like the question might change, but usually the themes are pretty similar. So they want to know the way that you act in certain situations. So having You know, I prepare those ahead of time, and they're super helpful in interviews.
0: Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. Today on Papa PhD, we have Rebecca Maimon. Rebecca joined Adoc Talent Management in 2019 as a research officer and recruitment consultant, where she contributes to in-house research projects focused on the skills of PhDs and how they can foster innovation within and outside the academy. She also provides skills and career development workshops for PhDs and acts as a recruitment consultant to help innovative companies find highly qualified talent that matches their needs. Rebecca holds a PhD in Educational Psychology from McGill University, Montreal. Over the past 10 years, she has developed and contributed to projects in graduate skills and employment, stress and social support during transition periods, motivation, engagement and human behaviour. Welcome to Papa PhD, Rebecca!
1: Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk with you today.
0: Well, it's my pleasure, and uh, I'm really, uh, really happy to to have you here on Papa PhD. Uh, and uh, well, as as always, we're going to start with your story. But you, you, what you do today is uh, really, really interesting to me, and I think it's going to be really, really interesting to, to the the listeners out there who are thinking about careers after graduate school. And uh, so, yeah, really excited to hear your story and to hear what you have to share. So um, to start uh, by the beginning, as always, uh, I would like to ask you to just talk a little bit about your journey and, and you know, your academic journey, how you uh, you came to do a PhD, you know, maybe don't go back to uh, high school, but uh, <laughs> uh, how how you had you know you you got into this journey how maybe you chose to do or you decided to do a phd and then eventually uh in part two we'll talk about what came after but uh yeah to begin what was your journey like
1: sure um well so to start i i think i can start that i i had a break after my bachelor's um and i was living and working in the united states Mm -hmm. and um I was working in a social services position that I that I enjoyed very much, but it was uh, quite challenging, if I can say. So I had that moment where I was like, "I need to go back to school." Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really like school. I was always good at it, and um, I think my career aspirations just—I wanted to do more. Um, so I had moved to Montreal uh, to do my masters and PhD at McGill University, mm-hmm. and at that point, that was there was kind of an understanding where you know, if you enter the master's program, you're going to continue to do a PhD. And um, as much as my advice to everyone is always to please think about what you're going to do with the PhD before you start it. Um, You know, I hadn't really had a clear path. I knew that I liked to learn. I was passionate about education and I wanted to eventually be in a leadership position. And, you know, I just thought that that was the way to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, So about halfway through my PhD, I was realizing I don't think I want to continue with an academic career. I know that I have options out there. I just need to um, I need to figure out what those are, you know. Mm-hmm. And I had just started taking the time to to explore, and um, you know, eventually that led me to where I am now. But I did do a number of years of research in motivation. Um, in social psychology research and research in uh, stress and social support and helping people within the higher education community um, make transitions and support their well-being.
0: Mm-hmm. And so you came to Montreal and it's it's true here, there's the system of starting a master's and then kind of transitioning into a, a PhD. I think that's what you were you were alluding yes. to. Yes. Um, but my question to you is, so, when you started your masters, did you imagine or were you foreseeing that you eventually would be a professor was that was that kind of the
1: that's typically the, the dream <laughs> that's typically the um you know what what people imagine, and I think also it's it, it's it's easy to project yourself in something that you're very um, used to or familiar with, right? Mm-hmm. So when we spend years in the academy it's it's quite easy to project yourself in in that position um so you know originally i was thinking like i love education mm-hmm. i like teaching i like research this i could do that um but then you know as the years pass and you kind of see what that's like sometimes i like to call uh, like not call it but say that doing a phd is like the longest informational interview ever <laughs> for being a professor <laughs> yeah. and um you know so it gives you a chance to learn really about what that what that profession is like and um the pros and cons mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. for me i just started realizing early on that um i wanted to go a different route
0: mm. and so cl- clearly this was this was uh, the, uh, this was evident or this was clear to you uh, uh within your yourself within your planning within you know your your mind but what about the environment uh how was did you talk uh, to someone about it? Once this idea uh, of or, or this concept of hmm, I'm going to do something outside academia started burgeoning, what conversations did you have and with whom and how did that go? And I'm thinking of maybe your, your supervisor, your thesis supervisor, maybe family, maybe colleagues. Was that some uh, an easy step to take to kind of uh, you know fully, fully uh, decide that. Okay, I'm gonna finish this, but I'm then gonna do something else.
1: Uh, well, I mean, just speaking for myself, I was fortunate to have the support. So, um, you know, something about the PhD is is that it's a very varied experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can really depend a lot on who you're working with and where, and and so on. So, you know, for sure, I talked with uh, colleagues, friends in my program about it because. It, there was actually a number of people who were feeling the same way. So mm-hmm. there's a group of friends I have. We're about four women, and we meet every few weeks, and we're friends. But we also talk. I mean, most of the talk is professional, and um, you know, we still meet to talk about those things. And you know, doing that early on was really helpful in sharing resources and talking to each other before job interviews and okay. and things like that. So I was lucky to have built kind of that have that that network at the peer level. Um, you know, when I brought it up to my advisor. I don't think he was very surprised. Okay. I think, um, I, I, I was hesitant to bring it up in the beginning, um, because I wasn't really sure what the expectations were. And I kind of knew that there were more generally expectations around continuing that academic path, you know, Mm -hmm. at the PhD level. So I did bring it up later, but, um, My personal experience was that I had a lot of um, support for that Mm
0: -hmm.
1: at at that level. And also at the university level, there were a, a lot of workshops and things offered.
0: When Rebecca mentioned having a support group that discussed professional progression and shared resources, my ears perked up. Here is one of the most healthy and helpful strategies you can try and implement in graduate school. A support network of peers, with whom you can discuss different aspects of your PhD experience, find accountability partners for your milestones or your writing, and share resources. I then moved on to asking Rebecca what resources helped her in her career exploration during graduate school.
1: I mean, pretty much any time we see something interesting coming up, we'll share it, whether it's like, oh, I saw that there's going to be this talk, um, or... Uh, there's a consulting firm coming to do um, an info session on CV or resume mm-hmm. writing. Um, so, you know, whenever I saw events at McGill, I would always try to share them or just seek them out. I mean, a lot of that process is kind of just taking the time to do the legwork and mm-hmm. googling and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and searching for things. Um, but when you do come across it, you know, save it and share it. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as specific things go, I mean, I don't want to rattle off a, a ton of like websites or anything Mm -hmm. like that but there are things out there that are i mean there are a lot of free resources out there that are fairly easy to find with a bit of google searching Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, or even job posts you know my friends they send me job posts hey i saw this you might be good at this you want to check it out and and i do the same
0: okay so you talk about different things that i think are very important so there's community these People, you know, like-minded people, uh, 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 women, like you were saying that, uh, in your case, that were kind of uh, keeping an eye out for each other and sending uh, sending job posts. That's awesome. Uh, plus, I guess the friendship factor is also a plus. Uh, being in graduate school, it can be can be very solitary as as an experience, and it must have helped to have this group of friends that that not only you would talk work, but also. Keep You know, keeping an eye out for each other of, hey, maybe you'd like to do this. This job might be good for you. that that's I think that's very important to not stay alone. Which, sure. And it's easy to fall into that trap, right?
1: Yes. I find out, well, I've only ever worked in the social sciences, but hmm. my experience from what I'm hearing is that it tends to be a bit more isolating, the social science and humanities labs. I mean, I worked from home for two years at the end of my PhD. Okay. But um, you know, you have to kind of suck yourself out of the bubble sometimes, <laughs> and just make the time to go and do something else, see something else. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I also had support from my supervisor. I mean, he still sends me job posts.
0: Oh well, that, that's super cool. And yeah, it, there, there's a, a luck factor there too of who your, superv- your supervisor ends up being and what type of relationship you're able to develop with them. But that—that's you know, it's in a case by case, like you were saying. It's uh, it, it varies. For sure. <laughs> Um, one of the message one of the take-home messages from what you just said is if there's a career center where you are go look at their you know uh, billboard or whatever keep up to date to what's happening there because i think a, a lot of these resources we were talking about might be offered by university through these types of, uh, of offices
1: yes right? please i mean it, they're a great resource there's people offices of people who it's their entire job is to help you get a job and to Mm -hmm. find those resources um so definitely you know seek them out and see what they have and you know if they don't have what you're looking for ask them you know maybe they can create something new or to invite someone to to come speak about it
0: Mm. Uh, and now we're we're talking about resources that are uh, you know a little bit uh, distant from you maybe but you also talked about a group of peers that's already closer, supervisor, supervisor who's quite close to you uh, uh, in the in the day to day of being a graduate researcher. Um, but uh, there's there's a couple of things that I'd like to ask to do with how you then prepared yourself to transition to whatever came after, and and we we don't know what it was yet, but you were looking at job posts, you know, you were probably uh trying to build some skills in these workshops that you might have been uh taking part in uh but one thing that i that i'm curious about is whether you uh, during all this uh this process and this journey if you had someone someone else from outside who were who played kind of a mentorship who was your mentor let's say and who might have uh, championed you or helped you go go a little bit further and and you know, reach your goals uh, more more consistently, maybe, or more quickly. I don't know.
1: Sure. Well, actually, I'll I'll, I'll speak just a bit to the to the path because yeah. the mentorship falls in there. Um. So probably around halfway through my PhD, as I mentioned, I realized like not only are there other opportunities, but I need to to really you know take this seriously and and figure out like how I'm going to make it happen, not just. Mm-hmm assume it will happen at the end. Yeah. Um, so my, you know, my supervisor was quite supportive of me at that point. Um, but he was also very honest in that, you know, he the only thing he had done is work in in higher education and academia. And he's like, I want to help you, but I don't really know how. And I don't know anybody really outside of this circle. Like if you think of a way I can help you, I'm in, but I just I don't know. So Um, you know, I, I had done really just a lot of time on my own searching. I hate to say that I Google things with a PhD, but I did like (laughs) a lot of Googling on like different professions and reading about them and, uh, hearing about informational interviews. Um, so I just had that moment where I was like, I need to extend my network because uh my little academic network is not going to cut it. And I didn't even know how to start. So I, I, really the way that I started was just broadening the academic network. So reaching outside of my department, I had seen this call for, um, volunteers to, to work on a, a committee at McGill to review, uh, to review their student life and learning portfolio. Okay. Um, so I wound up saying like, well, I'm going to meet people there. You know, they're still in academia, but they're new people. Right. Mm-hmm. So I walked into that and there was actually a consulting firm, um, you know, that was working along with them at that point. So I had met those people who were actually very kind um, and outgoing. So I started meeting, uh, I, you know, I took their invitation to have come talk and I met with them. And um, one of the, the the gentlemen who owns the, this boutique consulting firm in Montreal uh, was very generous and just, I saw right away that, You know, he wanted to work with me on stuff. You know, we, we wrote like a little article on LinkedIn together, but he was someone who just started like connecting me with other people. He's like, okay, "Okay, I see you want to do this other thing. Here's three people go talk to. So I started having informational interviews with consulting people and with people who do learning and development in like the financial sector and human resources at Cirque du Soleil and all, all across different sectors. So as soon as I started having those, uh, informational interviews and learning about just other things I could do, I was hooked. Like, <laughs> uh, you know, I had to, um, so just coming back to the mentorship yeah. part, this was a couple, few years ago.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, there, this person is someone um, that I still keep in touch with. I mean, maybe not every month, but you know, I still keep in touch with, we still talk about projects. Mm-hmm. We walk and chat about, you know, what's going on in his company. Talk about people I might want to meet. Still, um, he's been a referee for me to when I'm applying for jobs, mm-hmm. and that's nice to have a referee who's not in 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 academia. Yeah, um, yeah. So there's a little bit of luck there, but also I think just taking the step to reach out and to talk to different people. No, not everyone will be a mentor, but eventually you're going to come across somebody where it kind of clicks, and then you can have different mentors for for different purposes also you know it's not just a one-shot thing
0: yeah i think the the important thing you mentioned there is expanding your network outside of the the academic uh, milieu let's say of of the academic domain and that's where the 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 luck factor maybe increases a little bit because you're kind of cross-pollinizing your your uh uh, your network with other ones that that you weren't close to and that's when things happen and 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 sure. no, super, super interesting. Okay. Also,
1: I mean, just to let everybody know, you know, I, it's not always easy. I did a lot of cold emailing uh, and, you know, some people answer me and they're really nice and we have a coffee and I still talk to them and, you know, not everybody answers you. So I just want to <laughs> say, like, don't get discouraged about that or f- be too afraid to do that because it can help you a lot.
0: Mm hmm. And someone in another interview said that what they did was, oh, I started going to seminars from other departments, and that was also another way that they found to to kind of uh, widen their their network. Uh, and, and again, because they were having discussions about things that weren't usual for them, they were finding common points and even eventually building projects, interdisciplinary projects. So I you know I find this very very interesting. But you write that like even asking for um uh, informational interviews you know people are busy and you sometimes you'll get no answer because because and sometimes you'll get a no because again people may not have time but some of them will say yes and and it'll be it'll bring v- a lot of value to you to be able to talk to someone who's doing something that that you you might you think it, that you might be interested in doing so yeah Keep trying. The cold emailing may feel weird, but it's really, really worth it in the end for that one person that says yes.
1: (laughs) Right. And whenever you leave an informational interview, your last question should be, who else can I talk to? Right?
0: That's very Always
1: leave with another contact. Is there someone else you can connect me with? And Mm -hmm. if they, you know, if there's nobody there, they'll tell you like, I don't really know right now, but if there is, you know.
0: Yeah. It's true. It's true. And then, yeah it'll be it'll be your gain and uh uh it's very it's very i, I never heard that uh, advice it's really really good <laughs> it's like it's like when you take cherries from a bowl there's the the next one um but uh, yeah it's it's an organic way to even widen the net a little bit more awesome uh rebecca so here we were talking about uh you know you trying to get new new skills uh, and then eventually looking at job postings did you specifically prepare to uh interview or yeah to interview for specific jobs was there at any point where you got uh, you did workshops to do i don't know with the ta- tailoring your cv or even uh you know rehearsing for interviews was did you do anything like that
1: oh sure um so, I mean, as far as workshops, there were a number that were offered uh, through McGill. Um, yeah, I mean, I had attended one by McKinsey uh, Consulting on resume okay. writing. I had, I mean, pretty much anything I saw that I was able to go to, I went to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were things about um, kind of the way they do IDP or individual development plans now were just helping you kind of reflect and map out your motivations and aspirations mm. and values and things like that. Um, a lot of, I mean, a lot of what I had done early on was just looking at job posts. I mean, maybe two years before I graduated, I was looking at job posts and I was okay. like looking at the tasks, like what are the tasks and the skills in these jobs that I might be applying for? What am I missing that I can work on over the next year or two? Mm. Um, so just like highlighting that um, and interviewing, I mean. I had mentioned having friends, um, you know, that we were kind of in that same circle. So I could call one of them and say, hey, can we practice this? I mean, it's a weird feeling, but just do it because if you can, if you can get someone to listen to you, just have them ask you a few questions. I found one of the toughest things for me to get over was that short pitch Mm. in introducing yourself. (laughs) Like it happened a few times where I hung up on a phone interview and I was like, how did i put my foot in my mouth in like <laughs> explaining myself <laughs> like uh, it's me but it it's odd that it just it takes practice to yeah. you know to do it in a way that's concise and to communicate the value that you bring and mm. not take 20 minutes to do it and to be on on point and showing that you understand their needs and you know, coming back to the informational interviews, just mm-hmm. expanding yourself outside of your network, just talking to people that are not in your department and your discipline, it gives you those opportunities to kind of nail that down. So that by the time you get to an interview, you've messed it up a few times, and like you're good <laughs> now.
0: <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah. yeah, you mess it up, and then and then you get uh, you get good at it. No, for sure. Uh, so we're we're close to the end of, of part one, and we've been talking about your journey. We're now at this part of the first position that you that you landed after uh, after your PhD was it after was it at the end? How did that go? Uh, the 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 actual moment where you, you started you went for an interview for a position that was outside academia. Um,
1: for this position, it was a few months after I had interviewed for a few prior. Okay. Um, but this position was after.
0: Okay, so the position you're in now you started working on that right after your phd you know,
1: uh, you, a few months there
0: was a few months a few, uh, a few months and how so because we just talked about how you prepared and you talked about rehearsing and it it is weird and even if you can't if you do it on uh, you know just at the mirror in front of a mirror it's so it it already works it already can work for you but how did you kind of self-evaluate yourself after let's say your first interview how you know how how did you feel, or what effect did you feel that this training had and and on how natural you felt that the process was
1: um, I think I don't want to say fortunately for me because if it wasn't the case, I shouldn't be interviewing for it, but that um the the content and the the subject you know of of, of the position i I was very comfortable with okay. So that helps, you know, sometimes you, you are qualified to do other things and it can be a little nerve wracking to, you know, to kind of be in that new space and also be interviewing. Um, but, you know, to be completely honest, this was a space that was very comfortable for okay. me. And, um, you know, the interview process probably felt easier because I had gone through some pretty intensive <laughs> interviews in the past. Okay. At, at when I left, that I was, you know, like sweating and thinking, like, <laughs> "Oh, why did I say it like that?" And but then you reflect and you change and and you continue to make yourself mm-hmm. better.
0: Okay, uh, this just before finishing this first part, I think one important thing that that's kind of a subtext to what what you're saying that I'm hearing, uh, or, or that I think it's important for the listeners to hear is. You will do interviews where you'll come out of them saying, "Why did I say that?" and oh yeah, and it's normal it's uh, it's part of the process of getting it's because interviewing becomes a skill also after you know after a certain time you you start knowing what to say you start maybe knowing what sort of questions might come up but just the fact that you've practiced t- giving your elevator pitch that you talked about it kind of Lets you go into into the exercise and you know shift gears and 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 make it you know smoother later on
1: if I can share one tip, I just yes. really what I want is for this to be helpful for people that are listening is um when we talk about we talk about sometimes sore stories mm-hmm. um, where you uh, they're behavioral questions right so you address a situation um, the obstacle, your actions, and then concrete results okay. Uh, or maybe they're less concrete if they're behavioral questions, because this Mm -hmm. applies in another context as well. Um, So really, you know, the interview is just to find out about you, right? They already see your skills on your CV. So I am in the habit of preparing about four or five different source stories um, and just making notes of what those stories are in my notebook before I start the interview. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the question might be different. It might be like, a challenge or they might say like you know what is a time when you had a disagreement like the question might change but usually the themes are pretty similar so mm-hmm. they want to know the way that you act in certain situations so having you know i prepare those ahead of time yeah and they're help super helpful in interviews
0: yeah and yeah and it, it makes sense and the fact that you've prepared them they'll come out naturally whenever, exactly. whenever yeah whenever the question comes i have a question for you Do you know what a SOAR story is? SOAR stands for Situation, Objective, Action, and Results. It's a simple framework to help you prepare a few real-life stories to share with your interviewers, which will quickly give them an idea of who you are in a professional setting and of what they can expect of you. As Rebecca just mentioned, the key is to prepare a few and to be ready to quickly deliver them when appropriate while staying focused on the discussion. Next, I asked Rebecca about her role at Hoc Talent Management, a recruitment consulting firm focusing exclusively on PhDs and on their career development.
1: So at hoc Talent Management, I am a research officer and recruitment consultant. Um, and just to give you a little bit of context, Adoc Talent Management is a—it's uh, pretty much the first uh, recruitment cabinet that specializes in PhDs. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were founded in France uh, back years ago. They've been operating for more than more than ten years in France, and um, their the main mission at Adoc is to develop and promote the value of a PhD. And the skills that are developed during that that time, and how that they can contribute to 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 innovation and and um. You know, in in all places, in and outside of the mm-hmm. academy. So, hoc um, pretty much they have three main functions. They have a recruitment function, so we recruit PhDs for uh, for our clients, and we also do in-house research on PhD competencies. So. Um, We've developed our own competency framework of competencies that you would expect um, to be developed during a doctoral program. Mm -hmm. And uh, lastly, we also do workshops. So we use that research to inform workshops on um, how to develop specific skills or how to approach your career pursuit. Mm -hmm. And I came across this job, actually, um, because it's an important piece of advice Mm -hmm. through my network. Okay. Um, so it was a friend who had started working with them who was taking a maternity leave that said, hey, this is perfect for you because you already do things like mm. this. Um, so I don't want to just call it luck. There's a part of it that also, um, you know, it's, it's always the advice. Like this morning, we had a transatlantic webinar, uh, a series that we usually host once a month. And we give, uh, you know, t- a little tips and advice and open it up for questions. And um, I talked about networking this morning okay. that... Consistently in the research that we do, and I mean, I see it, study and study again, that most PhDs are finding their jobs through their network. Um, So this is is really important. Mm -hmm. And this is actually how I came in contact with that doc. Um, So not just making your network, but helping them understand what it is that you do, what you can bring, what you're interested in. So my friend reached out to me on this because she knew I was already writing about professional development in grad school for blogs at mcgill and things like that
0: Hmm. yeah so it has to do with the conversations you have too right it's it's not only the person who who's your neck your next desk neighbor but it's also the the net the kind of the living network the the people who you exchange with and and with who you talk about with whom you talk about your plans or your ideas for sure uh so you heard about this position uh this uh, i imagine you sent your cv and were called in for for interviews was it the classic experience
1: um it was pretty classic so i sent a resume um as opposed to a Mm cv here and i find sometimes the language Mm. gets a bit mixed (laughs) up but um you know for if you're applying for positions that are uh, not academic you you want to cut your c v down into a, a resume that's yeah. no more than two, two pages. pages. Um, so I had sent that, and um I had interviewed with them um and that was i mean that was more just of a conversation of me explaining what I like to do, and obviously I was very interested in what they were doing mm-hmm. um so that was a very um, a nice kind of process Mm -hmm. for me at that at that
0: point so you did your research on what they were on what they were doing i guess you you went on the internet of course uh, yeah because that's what that's one thing that people may forget is if you are in an interview and know the company or or the organization quite well people will feel that and it'll it'll make a difference in your interview too
1: Oh, sure. I mean, I didn't even think to say that. But yeah, I mean, anytime I go into an interview, even an informational interview, because I know we talked about Mm -hmm. this in part Mm -hmm. one, I don't just ask somebody, I look at, at who they are, what they're doing, where they work, what sector do they work in? What kind of challenges are that is that sector facing? Like, what can I bring to the table that's going to meet their Mm -hmm. needs? Um, So yeah, for sure, before you interview anywhere, you want to definitely read up on you know what the company does who works there what they're working on what their backgrounds are and be a researcher
0: <laughs> yeah exactly and it, again it, this is something that you that we do research find information uh, understand it and and make sense out of it and in this case prepare to then you know interact or or exchange with someone showing that hey i've done my homework i'm i'm genuinely interested and uh and we can have a really interesting conversation because there's a you know there's a basis uh, upon which we're going to work on i'm just gonna i'm not gonna start asking you uh questions from, from scratch like uh, who are you what do you do right that's it's it's a loss of your time and of theirs too and often these people are busy so it's it's even just a sign of respect to to uh to have taken the time to do that homework In in my point of view of course so yeah the next question then is uh what was this position do you remember the well is it still the same title that that uh that you that you have today the one that the one that when you got hired
1: uh yes yeah. so it's only been since september i've been uh with a and that's a contract actually so uh specifically I can mm-hmm. tell you what, what I've done in, in the past almost year um, I've worked on their PhD detectives project, which is a um, an, a national study that the ad hoc had done across Canada of uh, phds and um, looking at their skills that they developed during the doctoral their doctoral research, as well as their employment outcomes. You know, so we look at things that, like, where do they work? Do they work in R and D? Do they work outside of R and D? Um, you know, what's their salary like? Are they happy? Things like this. Um, but the thing that I really love about what ADAC does and their research is that they also talk to employers. Mm-hmm. So they really are a bridge between the academic and the, and the non-academic yeah. and, um, there's so much, you know, value that that brings into entering that conversation because, you know, we see so much in, not just in Canada, but I'll speak mm-hmm. to that because we're in Canada right now. Of, uh, You know, even at the government level, they're looking at trying to c- connect PhDs with meaningful employment that can contribute back into the economy and the innovation and, you know, things that that we want to do. Um and just within inside the academy, it doesn't really work that easily. You know, it's not a one way street. Mm-hmm. So I love that. You know, we engage with employers. We do research with employers. Also, re- um, employers who hire a PhD. What is their experience like? You know, what are their strengths? What can they work on? Are and you know where where can we take mm-hmm.
0: this? It's it's really interesting. And uh, last December, I was in Portugal, at invited by my alma mater, and to, to talk about uh, careers to the current students in my PhD program. And uh, one of the things talking with the professors uh, that they had difficulty was finding this bridge because it's they're two kind of hermetically sealed worlds, academia and industry. And it's really interesting to have this entity that really is in conversation with both sides and can make a bridge with the two. I I totally, totally agree.
1: Yeah, It's so important because there are misperceptions on both sides. Mm-hmm. And we do this work from both sides to try and alleviate some of those misperceptions mm-hmm. and, and make that connection easier. Yeah,
0: I remember one person who was there who, who gave a presentation um, was was giving a so she, this person was not in academia uh, was in a domain that was kind of uh, I don't know informatics uh, programming something like that, but the the, the person was a life sciences PhD and clearly there was there were um, perceptions like you were saying from uh, the company of first first why are we hiring a PhD they're going to want this much money they're they're going to be uh, I don't know uh, antisocial. but I think uh, in this in this example that I'm thinking it was a lot about oh they're going to be asking for a lot and uh, just because they have their degree and I think that there's a lot of misconceptions like that from one side and the other. So people that that are in industry may have this idea of the you know disheveled, uh, antisocial scientist. Uh, maybe some some you know maybe a little bit snobbish. Uh, I don't know. But then also from academia looking to industry, it's it's the mean. I don't know the mean uh, uh, shark tank. Uh, you know I, I i think i'd really be curious to first uh one one point i'm gonna let you talk but i am going to share a link to the the, the document that that ad published uh based on the P, uh, ph detectives it's really really interesting and important but uh yeah what what experience do you have about kind of breaking these uh these misconceptions and these uh um, kind of distortions that that are kind of natural because it's two. there are two hermetic worlds but do you have some experiences or some stories that you can tell about uh, about this
1: uh i mean i'm not sure if i have a specific example of you know breaking down a door and <laughs> changing a you know a, a culture <laughs> <laughs> it's, but it's um i think really Because, uh, yeah, I have seen those misperceptions on both sides. And because we do, um, you know, we do focus groups and qualitative interviews and things like this as well. Um, So we get to see those themes come out. Um, And, you know, if I could maybe even just to make suggestions on, you know, how we get to that, it's just to keep opening doors to communicate with each other. When I talked about in part one, like expanding your Mm -hmm. network, like, you know, it's just kind of those micro steps in, expand your network into, you know, people in industry, people outside of academia, and they're going to get to know you. And they're going to see that P not all PhDs are the way that they thought. And you're going to get to know their companies and see the Mm -hmm. same. Um, I also would, you know, if I were in the position, I would encourage more um, kind of conversations or events where, you know, we bring industry a little bit into academia, PhDs, in Canada, I mean, we make up 1% of the population. They don't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. They sometimes, you know, I hear employers say like, we we know that PhDs can really solve a lot of our problems. Um, but we, I mean, we don't even know how to value their skills or, you know, how that happens. Like, we kind of when we're in the academic world every day, we kind of take it for granted that we understand what's Mm -hmm. happening, but for people who are not inside that, I mean, they have no idea what goes on in your lab. So just kind of opening it up a little bit to just show them like, Hey, we're, we're, we're solving problems. We're doing innovative things. Like there can start to be a more of a connection. Yeah.
0: And here is where I think you're an organization like you, like yours can help is it's because as a, you know, each student having the, the weight of, of doing this and of breaking these barriers might be a little bit heavy. And I think universities, some of them are starting to do some of that work too, of trying to help students, you know, find first develop their skills and second, uh, find, you know, uh, find paths to follow professionally. I think I see more and more of these projects coming up in my conversations, but, uh, Traditionally, that was that hasn't been the case. You know, university is university, and then uh, you know they in the past they haven't been so involved in. Oh well, students want to do something after their PhD that is not in university. Let's help them do that. And as you mentioned before, in I think it was in in our in during the break, it's not the exception. It's the majority of people who end up not being in an academic track uh, position.
1: Yes, I mean roughly in Canada, about sixty percent of PhDs will go on to take careers outside of outside of the academy. Mm-hmm. I think around 18 percent, or give or take, will find full time full um, tenure mm-hmm. track positions, mm-hmm. and around another twenty percent will work um, in other positions. Um, as far as like administrative staff mm-hmm. and things like this in within universities. Mm-hmm. So if you look at 60% going out, that's, you know, that's not really the alternative. That's <laughs> the majority.
0: Now, one thing that what you were saying was eliciting uh, for me was when you do, when you go, to, especially if you didn't prepare during your PhD, when you go, do, go to that first interview, there's many things that can happen. And one, a big one is imposter syndrome, Right. And so you're dealing with you not believing that you're the person for the job, but then you're also dealing with the misperception for, of the interviewers of what, how, what's, how, how is a PhD going to fit into my team? But uh, again, I think things may be changing. Some companies surely have already seen that, that, uh, uh, people coming out of, uh, of, of this type of degree. Uh, Become great team members and have a specific set of skills, but uh, I, I don't think it's it's generalized. I think it's still there's a lot of work, there's a lot of uh, work to do on that side for sure. Yeah, yeah, there is. Uh, but we're doing yeah. it. Yeah. So can you please share a little bit about uh, because you've done these these quite large, you know, studies, and I'm I'm thinking of PH detective for someone who is uh, was listening to uh, to our uh, to our to the podcast and who might be thinking what should i invest in right now i'm in the middle of my phd and i think i've decided i want to invest invest in skills that are going to serve me after that don't have to do with my uh, subject matter specifically what's one big or a couple of big of most the most important pain points that you see that when transition comes, there's, there's a, a, a lack of maybe experience on this domain, on that domain. You know, what's the, the blind spots that maybe you can start working on right away?
1: Uh, well, actually, even if you had just asked me the one, I think I would default back to the, network, the networking. The networking, okay. Because it allows for the development of other competencies, right? When you start broadening your network, You have to start explaining to people. I mean, I don't want to repeat what we talked about Mm -hmm. before, but you have opportunities to work on your oral communication. I mean, one thing that I hear from employers very often, and, you know, I have to admit that it's often true, um, is that PhDs can be very verbose Mm -hmm, and um, (laughs) not everyone outside of academia is ready to, you know, has the time to sit down for 30 minutes for you to explain to Mm -hmm, them, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what they do, what you do you need to be able to do it in like two minutes mm-hmm. or less. Um, so all the skills that we look at then in our competency framework, you know, the, the there are a subset of them that we call core competencies. Mm-hmm. And these are competencies that we expect um, to see in PhDs, regardless of their discipline um, or their background or, you know, for a number of different things that we looked at, we look at some potentially confounding variables and we find this set of competencies, you know, where it doesn't matter. So, I would say you know for someone that's looking if you're halfway through and you want to get started, um, you know the net, expanding your network is a good thing because if you start to talk to other people in in a field where you might want to go, you will figure out what those skills are that are important okay. in that field yeah. right now yeah. like I'm not sure if you need to work on a technical skill like maybe some coding or programming or uh, you're doing i mean even in education you know like everything's going ed tech right mm-hmm. now. So you need to kind of top off your tech stack there. If you're looking for positions or, you know, maybe you want to go into consulting and you need to work on something else. Okay. Um, so it, for someone who doesn't even know where they want to go yet, if you can just start broadening your, your scope um, of the people that you talk to, you'll start to, f- some of those other competencies will naturally come out.
0: It's it's very good advice. But uh, now I'm, I'm going to put the question on its head and and ask this for again for people who are maybe thinking of, oh, should I, I should maybe start interviewing for this or that position, but I don't have any skills. What are the the greatest skills they never knew that they had, based on your experience? Well,
1: that they never knew that they <laughs> but what, had. What what
0: do you come out? You know, when you come out of a PhD, there's stuff that you developed. Just organically and not int- not with intentionally, but that coming out like you say, you 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 at Adoc expect people coming out of a PC with a kind of a certain group of competencies and skills. Are there are there one or two that are the most common, or or that that or that are most prized by by employers? Maybe that.
1: Um, well, sure. So I think uh, you know focusing on your project management skills is, is good advice. We usually would kind of suggest to people, you know, position yourself as a project manager cause you are. Um, and you know, I've heard it from PhDs where like, they know that they handle their projects, but they never really thought about mm-hmm. presenting it that way. So, I mean, you really have to, to do that kind of long-term project and to finish a project, you know, it takes a lot of time management Uh, It can be financial Mm -hmm. management, uh, like if you're managing your grants and things like that. I mean, clearly you have analytical skills and in-depth thinking and things like this. But, um, you know, you also have things like persistence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are a lot of collaborations in academia. So I think, you know, oftentimes there could be this misperception that we're not collaborative. But if you do work in a highly collaborative space, like try and highlight that, you know, highlight how many partners you've had or people you've worked with and, and things like mm-hmm. this? Um, so definitely positioning yourself as a problem solver as a project manager, uh, you know not not just a you're not just your scientific and technical expertise, mm-hmm. so that's usually what people think of, but we actually look at a number of different um, transversal transferable uh, skills, things like written and oral communication and and um, other things like behaviors and dispositions um like creativity mm-hmm. and reliability and you know ethics and things like mm-hmm. this they're all things that you bring to the table
0: excellent uh, now rebecca we're, we're reaching the end of the interview and uh, it feels like like time went that time went too fast but one thing that i'd like to ask uh given you know given that that your organization the organization you work with really has come how can i say this um, you know, has really focused really, really sharply on PhDs and on you know what they bring, what their potential is. Uh, I'm imagining that people listening might be thinking, how can I uh, get in touch with with Adoc, or can Adoc bring come to my university and talk? Can Rebecca <laughs> come and give a talk? How how can they? Uh, maybe benefit from all the, the knowledge that that you guys have uh, accrued so far and maybe you talked about workshops that that uh, are promoted by ad hoc how how does that work how they, how can they kind of benefit from from all this experience and this this know-how and this framework that you guys set up
1: sure i would actually love to speak to that for a moment, also for uh, for PhDs to to understand a little bit how recruiters work. I didn't even get into talking about my <laughs> my job as a recruiter because I do interview PhDs quite well, often. Well, it's,
0: it's a moment now. <laughs> um,
1: um, so as an on the recruitment side, as an external recruitment firm, you know we work for the client, which means that not just that we work for the client, but you know we that's that's who pays us. So you know we're never charging PhDs money. If you were a job seeker, you don't pay a recruitment firm. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I, you know, I'd like to clarify because I get those kind of questions a lot. Um, And typically like when we have a client who's looking for specific posts, we, um, you know, we go and we search for you, Um, but we also post, we also post all of our open posts on our website. So you can always check there and see if there's anything Um, or you can submit a spontaneous application and we'll see it there. And once we do have a position that comes up that aligns, with your experience, um, your expertise and your motivations, um, then we would reach out to mm-hmm. you. So that's the recruitment end. Um, and as far as the workshops go, um, ADAC has a, a, a wonderful collection of workshops, um, that they give. And they, speaking as someone who comes from, you know, having a PhD in education, I find that they're, they're very, they're quite good and, um, they're very interactive Um, they always do. Well, I mean, the past few months have been kind of special times, but, Mm, um, they're always kind of like small groups it's not just like a webinar where they're telling you things like there's where you have to put the work into it. Mm. Um, so something, you know, that I like about ADUC is, you know, they, they don't ever want to put any additional financial burden on PhDs. So we don't charge PhDs for workshops. Uh, we don't give them individually, what we do is we offer them at an organizational level. So um, it would be a, a university or a research center or a lab or, I mean, whoever it is, if you get a group of people together that want to do mm-hmm. it. Um, and and that's the way that that happens. Okay. Um, so, you can always reach anyone who's interested, um, you know, can always reach out to us and we'll, we can share our catalog or our catalog is available on the website as okay. well. Um, you know, f- just for PhDs who maybe don't have that opportunity at hand, we do offer, uh, we do offer a number of kind of open house workshops for PhDs to come in for free. And um, like I mentioned, we've been doing a transatlantic webinar series yeah. where we offer advice and we've been doing that once a month. So we are get- providing opportunities mm. in that way. Um, but I mean, hoc is there. We are very open to collaboration. We're always trying to reach out to new partners. Hey, like if you're in this space, let's talk. Uh-huh. Um, do you want to host an event? Um, you know, I mean, we're always happy to come contribute to a panel or even create one and okay. invite other people. So, so
0: just before we finish, uh, I, I kind of want to pinpoint this a little bit more. Imagine someone's out there listening and really wants to kind of follow up on what you're saying. So, let it just. Tell me if I'm I'm kind of hearing right. The thing to do would probably be go uh, talk with your graduate students association or with your the career center and say, hey, there's this there's this organization, hoc, and they have great workshop. Would you be willing to bring this workshop to the to to us here? Is is that the way it would be?
1: Yes, absolutely. And we've done them for associations as well. For example, the Canadian Association of Graduates and and Postdocs. Okay. Or, French association postdoctoral scholars okay. sorry okay. i mix up the acronym so much because i work in french <laughs> that's
0: right <fine. laughs> okay but yes so that that's how, how they they'd go about it okay so listeners out there if this uh, uh struck a chord in you go look at their website go look at the 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 portfolio of, of workshops and uh, maybe bring them to your university or to your department i can only uh, recommend having workshops during your graduate school that prepare you for for what com- what's coming after, and especially if you know knowing that they're really well uh, <laughs> really well produced and uh, educationally sound. Uh, you know, go go take a look, and if if one of the, if you have a group that might benefit, you now know how to do it. <laughs> Uh, Rebecca the next thing uh, would be to ask you if people want to reach out to you or um, to to go see uh, what Adoc is uh, for you to share the you know the URLs or your social media how you know what what's the best way to maybe learn about Adoc more and to reach to reach you if they want to ask you questions directly
1: Sure. Well, I believe we have some links that will go in the show notes as far as our website, and I've put hoc social media there. But I mean, me personally, um, you know, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. That's 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 the best. It is
0: now. I think nowadays, I maybe it's no longer necessary for me to ask this. People will maybe maybe go there immediately, but it's through LinkedIn is now. I think the best uh, platform to. To even reach out to people you, you might want to uh, meet for an informational uh, interview, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. It's become a really, really good platform for that. Okay. Rebecca, uh, I had other questions, but time <laughs> the time goes, goes quite fast. Uh, maybe we'll have a chance to talk uh, some other time, but... Thank you, thank you so much for sharing your story and uh, and for sharing what you do today. I think it's really important. It's important that organizations like this exist. And uh, you didn't mention this directly, but uh, I know that the organization uh, um, collaborates a lot with universities and with a lot of universities. And uh, I, I think it's it's really great to see something like that uh, ex- that that something like that exists. And well, it's exists it exists for more than 10 years you said starting in France but uh, for me it's it's quite recently that I learned about it so yeah uh, uh, keep up the good the good work and thank you for having me on Papa PhD
1: thank you so much for having me I think it's wonderful what you're doing and getting people's stories out there and uh, it's been a pleasure
0: thank you for listening all the way through I hope you enjoyed this episode and that Rebecca's insights will help you on your journey If you did, share this episode with your friends. They will surely enjoy it too. And now, it's that time when I offer you new sciencey podcasts to discover. Today, you will hear the trailer for Planthropology, a podcast about plants, their place in our life and the people who study them, and for Dear Grad Student, a podcast about life in graduate school, produced and hosted by a graduate student. Roll the tape. Do you love
1: plants? Don't be silly. Of course, you do. You might just not know it yet. I'm Vikram Baliga, the host of the Planthropology Podcast, the show where we dive into the lives and careers of some really cool plant people. Join me each episode as I chat with students, scientists, and professionals in the natural sciences and figure out what keeps them coming back for more. We'll explore their work, the ways they got into their fields, why they love plants and nature so much, and why you should love those things too. Planthropology is laid back and conversational and will keep you laughing and engaged, whether you're a scientist or not follow along for this adventure into the sciences and keep being really cool playing people fourth year phd student i'm more than likely re-editing that manuscript for the 22nd time or maybe i'm in my fourth zoom meeting today who can tell but mostly i'm probably working on my podcast it's called dear grad student and it's a podcast for grad students to celebrate commiserate and support one another through grad school Each week, I interview other grad students and academics about their experience from imposter syndrome, psycom, dealing with mentors, racism in academia, or, you know, all the other joys that come along with grad school. Not a grad student? Maybe you're thinking about grad school. Maybe you just finished and you really want to reminisce about the painfully glorious days. Either way, I think you should come check it out. You can find the podcast at deargradstudent.buzzsprout.com, twitter.com slash deargradstudent, or on your favorite podcast app. New episodes are posted every Monday. And until next time, warmest regards, best wishes, sincerely, Alana.
0: And that's it for this episode of Papa PhD. Thanks for tuning in, happy sharing, and see you next week. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to PapaPhD.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests.